Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you.
If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, John chapter 20. We're going to be beginning at verse 1. Not only do I have a tie today, I have PowerPoint. That's how special this day is, right? John chapter 20. Has anyone seen the film The Last Leonardo? The Last Leonardo. Apparently that film's not doing too well. It's been a while. The movie is about a piece of art that was in an auction in New Orleans in in, uh, 2005. The description on the painting was right after the time of Leonardo. And that was talking about Leonardo da Vinci. So there were these investors that came to New Orleans to check it out. And they saw that description and they came to really fall in love with the painting. And because of that, they purchased it immediately. They, they bought it for $1,275. $1,275. The painting is called Salvatore Mundi, translated Savior of the World. The buyers were memorized by this image. And they took this painting home and decided to investigate it a little further. As a documentary unfolds, they're trying to date it. They're trying to authenticate it. Uh, it, They take it to the the leading art restorer who is in New York City, and they start to strip off some of the restoration work that had been done to this painting. And they get down to the surface, and they really start to take a look at this work. And they begin to ask a question. A very important question. Is this maybe not after Leonardo, but is this a Leonardo? They take this painting to the Louvre in Paris and using the highest investigative techniques to evaluate paintings. At the end, after doing all the checks, they come to this conclusion that this is most likely a work of Leonardo da Vinci making it possibly one of 15 known works in existence of him. You probably recognize a couple of these paintings. The the first one is The Last Supper that is in Milan. And we also have the Mona Lisa that's in the Louvre. Ultimately, the painting is sold in 2017. Anyone want to guess how much? One million? 20 million, I'm sorry. Anybody else? A billion? How about half? Half a billion. $450 million it's sold for, making it the most expensive piece of art ever purchased. It's sold to a Saudi prince, and the rumor is that uh, this painting is now hanging on his wall and his half a billion dollar yacht, never seen again. What kind of struck me was that throughout this 
this movie, they keep mentioning this name, right? Salvatore Mundi, Savior of the World. It's, it's mentioned quite a few times. You have all these art restorers, all these critics, all these newspaper people, all these financial investors, curators. This thing just blows up right before it was auctioned off at, at Christie's. All these people referencing Salvador Mundi, Savior of the World. Is it real? Is it fake? But not once did anybody ask, is he the savior of the world? A $450 million question whether or not it's Leonardo. But I'd say far more important today is the question is, is Jesus Christ the savior of the world? It has eternal eternal consequences, right? In the, in the film, you see how they try and authenticate this painting. But, but I'd like us to consider, how do we authenticate is Jesus Christ who he claims to be? Is he the Savior? For, for Christianity, everything hinges on the resurrection, right? And that's what we must look at. There is no argument whether or not Jesus lived. People don't argue about that. But there is the argument, is he who he claimed to be? Was he or did he rise from the dead? That's what I want to look at us today. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. 
Lord, I pray that you would speak mightily through it. Lord, we just want to hear from you. Lord, we give you all honor and praise. Soften our hearts. Draw us to you. And Father, may we recognize you as our Lord and Savior. We love you and we give you all praise. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. That there is a lot in this passage, obviously, that pertains to the resurrection of, of Jesus. And in order to authenticate this Jesus, the, the resurrection first has to be something rational. I, I know some of you may think rational, resurrection, no way. But we have to notice some things. In the first part, the passage talks about Mary Magdalene who goes to the tomb. She finds it empty, right? And so she runs back and tells Peter and John and the other apostles, right? They start running. John gets there first, and, and when he does, he bends over and, and looks in the tomb, right? And he sees the strips of linen lying there, but he doesn't go in. Simon Peter shows up, and in true fashion of, of Simon, he goes right in, right? Verse uh, 16 says, or I'm sorry, verse 6 says, he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, when it says that Peter goes in and saw, it's not the normal word for saw. The text doesn't use the typical Greek word blippo, which means to, to see that we see in the previous verse 5. Instead, the, the word that's used there is theoreo, from which we get the word theorize. It's a word that means to uh, observe intently, to really look in, looking for an explanation. And what I want us to, to realize, what I want us to notice is that he's thinking. He's reasoning. He's looking at the evidence, trying to come up with some kind of explanation for what he was seeing. Have you ever looked at something and you just can't quite figure it out right there? It just puzzles you and it doesn't make sense? Maybe Peter is like in, the, in this moment, man, what's going on here? This, this doesn't make sense. The, the body's gone, but the strips of linen are there. If there were robbers who took this, they, they wouldn't have left those. Those strips would have been filled with very valuable spices. So not to mention if they took the body without that, the body would start to stink. So that can't be what happened. Well, well, maybe it was the disciples, some of the other disciples that, that took it, but they too, why would they live, leave the strips of linen there? If they did that, they would have dishonored his body. They would have to take it out naked. Peter's thinking. He's reasoning. And so is John. We see in verse 8, right? Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. So here's two guys examining the evidence, theorizing, right, reasoning, and they come to believe through it. I, I, the only reason I bring this up is because a lot of times people think, oh, if you're a Christian, you, you just accept everything by blind faith, right? Which is nothing wrong with that. But they think there's no reasoning, there's no rational thought processes being made. You just accept it. And that's simply not true. 
right? I believe we see Peter, I believe we see John, and I believe not to mention other followers at this time, and it takes a great deal of evidence to bring them to a place of belief in the resurrection. In in verse 19, right after this, Jesus appears to the disciples, and Thomas is not in there with this group. They tell him about this, though. They tell Thomas, hey, we just saw the risen Lord, But Thomas doesn't believe them. And he says in verse 25, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, Jesus appears to him, right? And he ends up believing. Maybe you're like, well, that's great for them. But what about us today Right, They had stuff to look at. They supposedly encountered this risen king. Right, But what do we have today? Well, let's look at what this passage gives us. Right, Notice the first person to reach the tomb is Mary Magdalene. She's the first person to see a risen Christ. That's huge. There was this second century Greek philosopher that hated Christianity named Celsus. He wrote a book trying to show that for philosophical and intellectual reasons, you should not believe the claims of Christianity. One of his main avenues to attack Christianity was focused in on Mary Magdalene. I'm going to give you the quote here in a minute. Ladies, I just want you to just want to say my apologies in advance for what he said, right? Here's the quote, ladies. He says, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? Now, he was able to make this argument because of the time in which he made it, right? That would not fly today. A time in which women were held in very low esteem and they had very low social status, right? Their testimony was not accepted in Roman courts or Jewish courts. just wasn't accepted. Combine that, though, with the fact that all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have the original eyewitnesses, the first people to see the risen Jesus Christ. They're all women, right? Therefore, Celsus' attack for this period or this time, it was completely understandable and successful. Women being the first eyewitnesses was one of the great weaknesses of the church in this time period. It was the Achilles heel of Christianity moving forward. How can you expect us to believe this when women were the first eyewitnesses? But we know today that this isn't the Achilles heel, right? This is actually supporting evidence You see, a main attack on the resurrection is that this is all just made up, right? It's fabricated. It's just a tale that was passed on. Somebody came up with it, and then they just passed it down, right? But the fact that all the first witnesses were women, including Mary Magdalene, has actually become one of our rational strengths of the case. How? Well, if you are making up a story of the resurrection back then, right, there is no way. There is absolutely no way you would have had the first witnesses be women because of the lack of social status at the time. You would have known that. 
You would have known that if you did that, you would be inviting this kind of scrutiny, right? This kind of attack. And you would have steered clear of it if you were making this up. Historians will tell you there's no way you would use women if you were doing that. You would have made all the first witnesses be men. Therefore, the historically plausible explanation is that the first witnesses were in fact women and that this account is not made up. There is no other good reason that explains women being the first witnesses. I, if I could go out of this passage a little bit, I don't know if you've ever caught this or understood this, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is, this is a letter to the Corinthian church. It is a public document that historians understand was written by Paul less than 20 years after Jesus died. And in it, he claims that there were literally hundreds of people who testified that they had seen the risen Christ. One time there was 500 people at once. You can see a name there. You probably can't see a name. That's pretty bad there, but it's Cephas at the top there. At the time of the letter, Paul's like, these people like Cephas, right? They live in this town. They live in that town. They're still alive. Go talk to them. Go ask them for yourself. Luke's gospel lists names like Cleopas. And to list a name is to list an eyewitness of somebody that they could reach out to to ask them if they were telling the truth. So here we see hundreds and hundreds of witnesses that claim to have seen a risen Jesus Christ. Go interview them, right? Peter and John needed to examine the evidence. Mary needed not only to examine that evidence, but she also needed to see a risen Jesus Christ to believe. Why? Aren't these people kind of gullible? back then. That's what we think of. They're not sophisticated like we are today, right? They're more likely to believe all this superstition and this nonsense and these stories. They would just embrace this sort of thing. Don't we think that? Well, you have to remember that decades before and decades after Jesus, there were a number of people that claimed to be the Messiah. People that claimed that they were going to lead Israel and free them from Roman oppression. One of those examples was Bar Kokhba, hailed as the Messiah by the greatest rabbi at this time, Akiva Yosef. Very famous. He led a result against Rome with hundreds of thousands of Jews. But he, like Jesus, like every one of these other messianic pretenders during the Roman era, he was killed. In all these cases, the moment that that happened, the moment that, that any of the men who claimed to, the, to be the Messiah died, the response was, oops, they must not have been the Messiah, right? Because they wouldn't have died. So the, the disciples would have been skeptical about this Jesus, right? Plus, no one ever claimed, any of these men ever claimed to be resurrection, resurrected. Why? Because many of the Jews didn't even believe in the resurrection, right? And the ones who did believe, believed that the resurrection would come at the end of time and be for the righteous, right? No Jew believed that there would be a resurrection in the middle of history by one person ahead of everyone else. Also, no Jew would believe that a human being could be God. God was held in such high regard by the Jewish people, right? They couldn't even say the name of God. 
out loud. They couldn't even write the name of God on paper. They still won't write the name of God on paper to this day. They are the last people. No Jewish person would ever worship a man as God. It would be inconceivable. But here's what we know. Immediately after this, there's a shift. You can see it in John chapter 20, verse 28, where Thomas, right, doubting Thomas, who said, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it, right? He says, my Lord and my God, when he encounters a risen Jesus Christ. End of Luke 24, Jesus is taken up to heaven. Verse 52 says, then they worshiped him, talking about Jesus, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. My friends, we see overnight, Hundreds of Jewish and men and women have this drastic change in what they believed and worshipped. They worship this Jesus as God. It is such an extremely drastic change that departs from everything that they would have believed in up until this point. It's almost inconceivable that they begin to worship him. You think you're skeptical? You think people are skeptical today about worshiping Jesus or accepting him as the risen Lord? These people would have been much bigger skeptics than any one of us. And the fact that they died for what they believe in just gives more credence to it. No one dies for a lie. They believe this. What happened to change their beliefs? Evidence. Eyewitness accounts. That's the only plausible explanation. There's a Japanese author named Shusaku Endo who wrote A Life of Jesus and puts it like this. I I love this quote. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you will be forced to believe that something hit the disciples that was ever bit as amazing, maybe different, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. For if we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians, you will find yourself making leaps of faith as great as if you had believed in the resurrection to start with. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, right, you're going to have to believe in something else equally amazing, something else equally electrifying, every bit as life-changing. Back to this passage. Besides reason, what else do we have to authenticate this resurrected Jesus? Look at what he does with Mary, right? One commentator points out that Mary Magdalene is very admirable. She's the first to the tomb, and she can, you can tell just how much she cares, right? She's weeping. She's distraught. Clearly, there was a connection there. These are signs of how close she was. But notice, her understanding of Jesus is way too small. As much as she loves him, she's looking for a dead Jesus, a Jesus that fits her understanding, a wonderful rabbi, a brilliant teacher, a miracle worker, right? A a godly man, but not someone more. The commentator said that Jesus wanted Mary to, to recognize that as grand as her devotion to him, her estimates of him were far too small. Jesus has said, I am the light of the world, right? She heard that. He said, I'm the judge that was going to come back and judge the world. He told her that he was going to die and rise again. She had heard all that, but her human understanding, her human categories for him wouldn't let her see him for who he really was. So he had to reveal himself to her. How does he do that? He doesn't do it like we think it should have been done, right? 
we think he should return and reveal himself like Superman does. I don't know if you, you watched the, the movie Superman Returns, but this Superman returns in a mighty way where there's this plane flying out, falling down from the sky, and he catches the plane, and it happens right over a baseball game, and he, he, he sets it down right there in the middle of the stadium, and all the millions of people see him that are watching on TV. That's how a superhero returns, right? That's how we expect that Jesus should have returned. That's how we want it. But that's not how Jesus does it. Instead, he says, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Do you see the gentleness? We've talked about that for the last couple weeks, right? At this point, he's, he's risen from the grave. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's victorious, and yet he's gentle. He's relational. That's how he reveals himself. We don't like that, though. We want the grand reveal that comes out of the sky, right? But I believe that the real way that Jesus authenticates who he is is by coming to us each individually and revealing himself to us. It's great to have evidence. It's great to have theories and and reasoning to look at those things, but the truth comes when he reveals himself to us. The way in which he, he, he relates to Mary, he comes to her, is a summary of the whole Bible, right? As much as she loved him, as much as she admired him, she would have never found him unless he first revealed himself to her. She's looking for a dead Jesus, a human Jesus, something that she could wrap her head around right? She would have never found him unless he revealed himself to her. Humanly speaking, faith is impossible. It only works if if Jesus breaks through and reveals himself first. Only if he comes and opens our eyes, right? He's the one that draws us near to him. Even the, the best reasoning can't hope to do what his revelation can Some people can't see who Jesus is. Why? Because our hearts and our minds are too small. The way that we were raised, our upbringing, our culture, our church tradition, all limit our understanding and try to keep Jesus small. Only the resurrected Jesus coming to us can burst through those categories. He comes gently, knocks on our hearts, right? And invites us into that life-changing, life-wrecking, life-flipping upside-down relationship with him that shatters everything that we ever knew. And it reveals truly who he is. Can I remind you of what Jesus invites you into? Can I remind you about his grace? We see this plain and clear in who he chooses, right? He chooses Mary to be the very first messenger of the good news. 
We said she's the first person in history to encounter this risen Christ, right? And the first person to go tell everyone else. Do you, do you know who Mary Magdalene was? Luke 8, 2 through 3. She had seven demons cast out of her. I don't know what you think about that. I don't know if you don't believe in demons. I don't know if you do believe in demons. But remember Mark chapter 5, and there's other, other pictures of what a demon-possessed person looked like. Let me share that with you, though. Those pictures of, of, are of people who walked around half-naked, right? People talking to themselves. People hearing voices and crying out. People cutting themselves. Social outcast, usually homeless. And that's who Jesus Christ picks first. The last person we'd probably choose, right? That's who he goes to. A reformed mental, mental patient, if you can't wrap your head around demons, definitely not a pillar of the community. And he says, you're my daughter, and I call you to be my messenger. How much more clear could the message of grace be than seeing it in Mary Magdalene? Jesus doesn't save on the basis of pedigree, on the basis of social standing, right? Are you a good moral person? No, then you can come to church. Then you can get saved, right? Uh, Have you cleaned up your life yet? He doesn't save the strong. He looks for the weak. It's the opposite of what our world says, right? He, He saves people that know they're weak, people who know that they have nothing to offer, people who know that they're sinners, And desperate for grace. People who know that they're not deserving. And he knows us by name. Mary. Right? Would you stand with me? My friends... Behold the grace that is offered to us. Behold the picture of what it looks like when you encounter a risen Jesus Christ. Will you remember that today? I hope you know him. I hope you truly know him. Not just know about him like I know about Michael Jordan. I don't know him. I know a lot about him. I pray that you know him personally, relationally. I pray that you realize that you're in need of God's grace, right? Scripture tells us that we're all sinners, all in need of it. The closer I I grow to God, the more I just realize how desperate I am. My friends, he reaches out to us while we're still sinners. That's when he died for us. And he extends that gift of grace to us for anyone that will accept it. I pray you've done that. I pray you've accepted him 
And I pray that you follow him all the days of your life. It'll be the craziest ride you've ever been on. But it'll be the best. And I pray you invite other people on this journey as well. That's what we're here for. That's what he's called us to do. I pray you never listen to the enemy who tells you you're worthless. I love the story that Doug shared today. I wish you would have heard it. But I know what the world tells you. I know what the world labels you as. But I know he knows you by name. And if you accept him as Lord and Savior, you can be a child of God. Amen. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for everything that this day represents. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody in here who doesn't know you, right, that they would acknowledge that they are a sinner in need of your grace. I pray that you'd remind us all that the wages of sin is death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we know that you demonstrated your love for us. And that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Father, I pray that we would confess with our mouths that you are Lord. And I pray that we would believe in our hearts that God raised you from the dead. Save us, Lord. We ask you that. Lord, give us an opportunity this week to share that good news, that life-changing news with somebody. We give you all honor and praise. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. He has risen.